Well, good evening. Welcome back. Thank you. How many of you were not here last night? This is not to shame you. This is just so I know. All right. Very good. Good stuff. Um, well, my name is Garrett, in case I haven't met you yet, and I'm pastor in uh, Northern Virginia, just about uh, right outside of Washington, D.C. So we're about three miles from the Pentagon is where, where our church is. Um, my wife, Carrie, is at home with our four kiddos, and um, so you can, you can be in prayer for her, that she would be, uh, have a lot of, lot of grace dealing with them. Um, I'm here with uh, Brian Fujito. He's one of our elders at the, at the church. So at the break, if you have any questions about anything I've said, Brian will fix it all, and uh, he'll be glad to, to answer all your questions about uh, apostasy and Melchizedek and all that kind of stuff. So that'd be great. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, we're going to pray. We're going to ask the Lord uh, for his mercy in our time together. And then we're just going to dive right back in. Father in heaven, we say thank you for your grace that is greater than all of our sin. We say thank you for your mercy, your patience, your love, your faithfulness your goodness. We thank you for the way that you have given a Savior, your Son, who is the fulfillment of all of the, the pictures and the, the promises and the prophecies of uh, the Old Testament and the way that you sent him to come and to rescue us by ransoming us with his own blood on the cross and then rising from the dead that in Him we might have our sins forgiven and might be reconciled to You. And we pray that tonight as we continue our study in, uh, in Your Word, that Your Holy Spirit would fill us and that You would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe Your Word. We pray that You would help us to behold the Son we would see Jesus for who he is and that we would love him and that we would hate sin and that we would press in to the rest that awaits us um, before your holy presence. Father, give us grace. We pray you bless our time now. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, so I know some of you were not here last night, so we're going to just do a, a quick review to catch up to where we are in chapter 7, okay? So... Um, Jesus came as the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, if you're going to sum it up in one word, it's the word anticipation. Somebody is coming to fix this mess, to, to, to come and to deal with sin uh, that ravishes the world around us and ravishes within us. We can't escape it. It's everywhere in everything. Everything is corrupted by the fall. God promised a Savior would come. Jesus came. He was born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life. We said that as he lived, that he proved his perfection. He was perfected is what Hebrews says. Not that he was imperfect and became perfect, but he, he proved himself to be a worthy sacrifice who willingly and joyfully went to the cross. And there he was, do you remember the word that we... We had yesterday, it starts with a P. He was the propitiation for our sins. God's wrath was satisfied on Christ. 
The wrath that should have fallen on sinners like us, it fell on the sinless Son of God, and Jesus became the wrath quencher. That's what He did. He drank it down to the dregs. And then He went into the grave. Three days later, He rose from the dead. And now that He, he taught for 40 days, and then He ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, um, at the promised Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, people began to hear the gospel in their own languages, and it went out, um, and the gospel spread, and people began to believe the good news that if you would turn from your sin and believe upon Jesus, you would be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to the Father and brought into His kingdom. Well, this gospel gets all the way out to Rome, and it gets into one of the synagogues, and there, Hebrews, Jews, who had been waiting for the Messiah, hear the good news that the Messiah has come the one that we've been waiting for has come and his name is Jesus. And they believe upon him. And they begin, they begin to meet together as a church. And God is blessing it. But then pressure begins to come on that congregation. A social persecution from Jews who come and say, Whoa, 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 you need to come back to Judaism. You, you, you need to come back. Or, and then, you know, you're dead to me in regards to family. Jobs, they're not going to get them. They're going to be ostracized. There's going to be, there's going to be all kinds of things. So they hadn't shed blood yet, but persecution is coming on them. And then theologically, what they're going to do is they're going to be saying, and this Jesus guy, he's not qualified to be the Messiah because he's from the tribe of Judah. And if you follow some, somebody who claims to be a high priest from the tribe of Judah, he's not qualified because high priests need to come from the line of Levi. So this Jesus guy, if you follow him, you're giving up on the law, you're giving up on the prophets, you're giving up on the sacrificial system, you're giving up on a high priest, you're giving up on the sacrifice itself, and you are going to die under the wrath of God. And you need to come back to Judaism. And what, the, and what begins to happen is it rattles the congregation. And some begin to fold to the pressure and they begin to not meet together anymore and they fall away. They begin to drift from the word that they had heard and they begin to forsake Christ. And the, con the pastor of the church writes the book of Hebrews to that congregation and, and says, no, no, no. No, listen. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. He's the fulfillment of everything that's been promised in the Old Testament. Don't go back because God is going forward in Christ. There's no, there's no plan B. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. Look to Him. Believe in Him. And lifts up Jesus. Showing that He is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's of a greater order of priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood we'll see tonight. He mediates a greater covenant, the new covenant. He offers a better sacrifice himself in a greater tabernacle, cleanses, as it were, heaven so that we can come into his, his presence. And we, chapter 11, should respond in faith, just like the people of old. And that, in the midst of that, when the Lord disciplines us, don't grow weary. Trust that he's doing it for your good so that you will become like him all the more. And you do this, chapter 13, in the context of a local church where you're trusting and submitting to the leadership who are going to be giving an account for your soul. And that's the book of Hebrews. He's exalting Christ for 13 chapters as being the glorious fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. 
And then through the book, he gives these five warnings where he warns that if you, if you go out and you leave Christ and you forsake him, that there's nothing that awaits you except the wrath of God because there's, there's no other covering for sin. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Do not drift from the word that you've heard. And yesterday we walked through the first six chapters and we saw that Jesus is greater than the prophets, chapter 1, that he's greater than the angels, chapter 1, and that was important because it was through the angels that the law was given to Moses and if God is going to judge people who disobey the law, how much more uh, when people reject the incarnation and fulfillment of the law? Then we saw that Jesus is the, foundation, the founder of our salvation and that he's greater than Moses. Moses is a servant in the house, but Jesus is the son over the house. And then he gave in chapters 3 and 4 an example to avoid. You remember? Who was the example to avoid? Yeah, the Exodus generation. Those people who came out under Moses and ate of spiritual bread and drank of spiritual drink and were baptized into Moses those who saw his glory and had all of this, this, this huge spiritual experience, but they fell under judgment because it was not accompanied with belief and they fell away. He says, do not be like them. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Believe it. Cling to the word. Cling to it. And that's chapters 3 and 4. And he says, Jesus, is, he's, a, he's of a better He's a better priest even than Aaron. So, and then I, I need to tell you about this. So if you look down at chapter 5, verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We talked about that just a moment ago, him being made perfect. He wasn't not imperfect, but he's, he was proved as perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation Uh, to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is where he says, this is really important for us to understand, that Jesus is of a different priesthood. And I want to tell you about this, but, verse 11, it's hard to explain since some of you become dull of hearing. And then we walk through this third warning here where he talks about the need for maturity, which is seen, well, which is cultivated through what? Discernment. Practicing, hearing, and seeing things, and discerning whether it's good or evil or right or wrong, that that's how you grow in maturity, is you're practicing discernment. And then he goes on, and in chapter 6, he talks about these who were once enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, having shared in the Holy Spirit, having tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away. That these people who used to be with us, who went through the membership class with us, who were baptized with us, who took the Lord's Supper with us, who used to sing the songs about Jesus the Messiah with us, who cried tears even when we cried, And then they fell away and they no longer followed Jesus. He said, those, 
And then he gives this, this strong word that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And we talked about what that meant, that um, certainly there is nothing that is impossible for God, and the Lord knows who's, who those are that have fallen away in that way, but there, are, there comes a point where the heart is so hard that repentance will not happen. And that what they do in their falling away is they re-crucify the Son of God, which means they say Jesus got what he deserved. He's not the Savior Messiah. He's a, he's a dead Jew, and he got what he deserved. He should have gotten hung on the cross. And that's, I'm going to leave him there, and you walk away. You, you forsake him as, as Savior. And now if we look at verse 7, this is where we're going to pick it back up, because this is where we left off. He gives an illustration to help clarify for us about these people. He says, for the, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed and in its end, it will be burned. So the land here is the heart. The rain is the word of God that falls on it. And there's two responses. One response, the heart produces what? Fruit that receives what? A blessing. The other bears what? Thorns and thistles, which throughout the scriptures should, should remind you back to Genesis 3 with the curse of sin, right? It's a picture of, of death and, of, and ends up being cursed and burned. And then he says here in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, this sober, hard warning, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And that's where the congregation says, Praise the Lord. So he, he says, the, there, there are those who have done this, but of you, I have a hope, because I see, I see I see things in you that give me great hope. For, verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. That's the fruit. He's seen fruit in their life. And yet we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, all the way to the end, so that you may not be sluggish. Just like back in chapter 5, verse 11, dull of hearing, it's the same word. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Those are the saints of chapter 11. Not like those of chapters 3 and 4. The author here sees these people as being a different kind of people. And what these warnings are intended to do for the believer is to, to melt the wax, the spiritual wax in your ears. It helps you to hear. They become dull of hearing. These warnings come, and what they do for the believer is they make you perk up and say, you said what? what? Now what? What happens? Well, I need Jesus. That's what it's intended to do, is to move the heart to trust in Christ all, all the more. And he sees that here in them. They had shown faithfulness in the past and are still showing it in the present. And he's calling them to continue showing it all the way to the end. So, keep trusting is what he wants them to do here. Now, 
He's going to remind them. He calls them to, be, to persevere in faith. And what he's going to do now in verses 13 through 20 is he's going to remind them of God's faithfulness. So what, what moves us to faith is the fact that God is faithful. It's going to show God is going to be faithful to what he's promised to do so you can keep trusting him. Because our God is not a God who's a liar. He tells the truth and he keeps his promises. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's from Genesis 22, 17. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. What did, what did God promise Abraham? That God would give him a what? He would give him a son. And through that son, he would have a nation. And through that nation would come the Savior, Jesus. Okay? Now, how long did Abraham patiently wait for Isaac? God made him a promise in chapter 12. Does anybody know how long it took until chapter 21 of Genesis? Dave's been preaching through it. Anybody? <laughs> 25 years. Abram waited 25 years for God to come true on his promise. Are you waiting on something right now from the Lord? Sometimes God calls you to wait a long time. But just because it's been a while, do not doubt his faithfulness. God's timing is not our timing. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above ours. Verse 16, for people swear. So, so God made this promise here. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all disputes, an oath is, the final, is final for confirmation. Meaning, so if you're talking to somebody, you're like, well, I swear by something greater than, than me that I'm going to keep my oath. So I've made an oath, and I swear that I'm going to keep this. I swear by something higher. Verse 17, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So the two unchangeable things are His promise and His oath. God made a promise. I'm going to bring a Savior through Abraham. I'm going to do that. And His name is Jesus. And He swears by His own name. Because God can't swear by anybody higher. So He swears by His own name. I will do this. And because God is a God who defends His glory always... He's going to keep his word because God is not a liar. He always keeps his word. God swears he will keep his promise about Jesus. So because God does this, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. That's his word for the congregation. God is faithful. He told you He would send Jesus. He sent Jesus. And that same Jesus is going to do what He promised to do, which is to remain the Savior forevermore, and you can trust Him. Don't go back. There's nowhere else to go. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So you have strong encouragement to grab a hold by faith. 
to the hope set before you. Keep pressing on, is what he's saying. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice here, behind the curtain. Remember we talked about this yesterday, that in the Holy of Holies, that's where God's presence would dwell. And that there was a curtain that separated holy God from sinful man. And we said that when Christ died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two, and people had access now through Christ into the very presence of God. And what he's saying here is that Christ is an anchor. He is the anchor that's within the veil. He is in the Holy of Holies. That's where He is. And it's like there's this this chain that is tied to our souls. And that He is steady and He is not moving. And that He is pulling us home. And that what we need to do is trust and look to Him and persevere in faith all the way until we see Him face to face. He says, we have a steady, sure, fast anchor who has gone within the veil. Jesus is a forerunner on our behalf. He's finished it. We'll see that in chapter 12. He's already made it home. And now he's calling you, follow me, trust me, don't look back. Remember Lot's wife, don't look back. Come, trust, come. There's nothing out there for you. And he has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is where we're going to move into chapter 7 with, with the high priest, um, Jesus, and see how he is of a different order. And we're going to address that question of how can Jesus, who's from the tribe of Judah, be qualified to serve as the high priest since high priests are from the order of Levi. Something's got to give here. And God, God's got an answer. That's what he does. He has a plan, and he's always had a plan. Uh, And he's going to have a greater, better priesthood. Now, the way we're going to do this is I'm going to go ahead and work through chapter 7. When we get all the way through chapter 7, we'll stop, we'll take some questions, and kind of see where we are, okay? Now, I'm going to go ahead and preempt chapter 7 like this. Uh, He said back here, um, It is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. It's also hard to explain because it's super deep, Okay? He is about to drop some, some like, deep stuff here uh, with the Melchizedekian priesthood. Just to encourage you, the first three times that I heard this, I was just utterly confused. And I thought, maybe I'm dull of hearing, you know, I mean, like, in all of that. Um, but I just encourage you to listen, to take notes, to think through, to watch, to try and grab the big idea. And then this is being recorded, and you can go back over, and I can point you in the direction of some other resources that maybe would explain it even better than me. Um, but the main point that he's going to show us here in chapter 7 is that Jesus is of a different priesthood, a priesthood that requires an eternal priest. And no Levitical priest can be in that priesthood because they all have one big problem. And what's that? They just keep dying. Okay? So what you need is you need a priest who's going to live forever. And there's only one who's going to do that, and his name is Jesus. Okay? Now, what he's going to do here is he's going to mention this guy... Melchizedek. We've already seen him here in verse 10 of chapter 5 and now verse 20 of, uh, of chapter uh, 6 here. And who is this Melchizedek? Well, 
Melchizedek shows up, he's mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the Old Testament and we're going to see these two places that Melchizedek is spoken of. And then what the author is going to do is he's going to take these two, um, these two scenes, one is a narrative, the other is a psalm, and he's going to take those two things and he's going to tell you how Jesus fulfills them. Okay? So let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14. There's a civil war that breaks out in Canaan. You've got these, these kings go to battle, five against four. Lot gets taken away because he's in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram comes in, uh, delivers him. And after this, verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, probably not a good guy, at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and... Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So after Abraham does this battle, these two kings come out to meet him. One, the king of Sodom. The other, the king of Salem. Okay? One's a good guy. One's a bad guy. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And then we say, see here, he was priest of God Most High. This guy, Melchizedek, we've never seen him before. We never see him afterwards. We've never seen who his mommy and daddy are, which is going to be important in a minute. And we never see him die. He just shows up on the scene. And we see that he is a priest of the one true God. An acceptable priest. And he brings bread and wine out. Verse 19. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. Okay? So, Melchizedek blesses Abram. Abram tithes to Melchizedek. That's all we see. That's the narrative. Okay. Um, Melchizedek was a priest. He was not a Levite. And he blesses Abraham. Abraham pays tithes to him. That's all we see. Now go over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. It's to your right. The big book in the middle. Psalms. 110. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. God the Father says to God the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4, key verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Remember that? God makes a promise. He swears he's going to keep it. You, 
are a priest, how long? Forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord, God the Father, says to my Lord, Jesus the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That quote showed up earlier back in chapter 1. We saw that earlier, okay? Spoken of Jesus. We know he's talking about Jesus here. So, you, Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's another order of priesthood. Does it come before or after the Levitical priesthood? Before. That's very important. There is a priesthood that is acceptable to God that is before the Levitical priesthood. Okay? Back to Hebrews. Chapter 7. The author now takes what Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 teach us, teaches us and uses it as a type or a picture of Jesus and shows why he is qualified as the high priest. So he's going to take these two scenes and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is going to explain how Jesus fulfills it and how Jesus is of that he is that high priest forever. Unlike the Levitical priests to keep dying. Okay, so over here, the Jews are saying, come back to this priesthood. And he's like, whoa, 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 no, their priests all keep dying. We need a priest who's going to live forever so that our salvation will be secure. We have a greater high priest. Verse 7. He's going to talk here about the... Or chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. He's going to talk about the names of Christ here. Okay? For this Melchizedek, the one he's been talking about so far, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, made Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We saw all that. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And now he's going to do is he's going to start interpreting for you. He is first, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. So, um, Melech means king, Zedek means righteousness. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He interprets that for you here, okay? He is first, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. So this guy, Melchizedek, is a king of righteousness and a priest. He's a king and a priest. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Then he is also king of Salem. Salem comes from the, the, the word shalom, where we eventually get Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. So king of Salem, the king of peace. So he's the king of peace and the king of righteousness. Now, verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a, high, a, a priest forever. Now, this is tricky, okay? The Melchizedek guy, the real Melchizedek guy, he actually did have a mother and a father. He actually did have a genealogy. He actually was born. He actually did die. In the text, though, in Genesis, he's presented as if he didn't have that. He just came on the scene. What the author is doing is saying, what you see there is a picture of something. That's what's not important about that priest is his genealogy. Which, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you've got all these lists of names. 
right? You've got all these phone books all the way through there. Do you even know what a phone book is anymore? You know what I'm saying. There's lists of names, okay? Because one of the really important questions in the Old Testament is who's your daddy? You've got to know who, who's the father of who. And the reason is because God makes promises to people and he traces those promises all the way down. In Nehemiah, when they come into the land, Ezra, and you look, you, they start listing who can be the priests, and they, what they do is they break out the genealogies. They're really important to see if somebody's qualified to serve as a high priest. What the author here says is this Melchizedek guy, that's not important. He has no genealogy, as it were, okay? unlike the Levitical priests. Now, again, some people will hear say, well, then I guess that means that Melchizedek was actually Jesus. It was a pre-incarnation of Jesus. We're going to say that's not it either, because he says right here in verse 3, what word, so you're studying your Bible here, what word might tip it off that this is not Jesus? Resembling. Good. It's not Jesus. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Jesus has no beginning, and he has no end. He has always been. Melchizedek in Genesis was pictured that way. Does that make sense? I know it's tricky, but he was pictured that way. That's what he's playing on here. All right? Now, verse 4. If you didn't get that, you'll be fine. Hang with me. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, great Abraham, gave a tenth of the spoils. Melchizedek the Great, he tithed to him. Verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. This is Numbers 18. That is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. What he's pointing out here is that Levites who came from Abraham, our descendants, they had to pay tithe, people paid tithes to them. Well, Abraham here, the father of them, paid tithes to Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, which means that he's greater than who? His descendants, who are the Levites. So the Levites, they should see that Melchizedek is greater than them. That's what he's pointing out here. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. Verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, Levites, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, Melchizedek. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, usually, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The author of Hebrews is saying, these Levites, it's like they were paying tithes to Melchizedek because they were in Abraham, as it were. He's showing the Levitical priesthood is an inferior priesthood to the Melchizedekian priesthood. Because Levites came from Abraham, but Abraham himself bowed to a greater priesthood. Do you follow? Okay. He is... He is showing that Jesus is, is greater. He's of a greater priesthood. Levi himself, as it were, acknowledged that Melchizedek is greater than himself. Now, this, by the way, pause here. This is that, that deeper doctrine kind of stuff that, that he calls the church to press into. 
He says, this is going to stretch some of you to where some of you are going to be like, that's hard. That's, t- that's tough. I'm not, I'm not getting it. Good. Come back and try again. Keep pressing in because there's, there's something that's really important here that the Holy Spirit says, it's so important, I'm going to give you 28 verses on it. Like, this is, this is good stuff. All right. Back to verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Meaning, if the Levitical priesthood could handle the problem of sin and fix it once and for all, then why would you need another priesthood? Good question. Good point. Well, the Levitical priesthood couldn't fix it. That's the problem. Verse 12. For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one, Jesus, of whom these things are spoken, belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. So the law requires that priests be of the tribe of Levi. But Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi, so there has to be a change in law. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, Levites, but what's the requirement of this priesthood? The power of an indestructible life. If you are going to be part of the Melchizedekian priesthood, you've got to have one requirement. You've got to live forever. That's it. Because this priesthood, he's going to be a priest forever. So you've got to have an eternal priest. All the Levites are like, can't do it. We keep dying. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Very short guest list here. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. One of the things we need to understand about the Old Testament is that it's all shadows. It's it's shadows of which Jesus is the substance. The lambs that were offered up, lamb after lamb after lamb, are a shadow of what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sin of the world. All of those offerings are mere shadows of which Christ is the substance. He is the fulfillment. And that's what he's showing here. That the law was a tutor to lead you to Christ, as Galatians would say. It's just intended to point you there. Through this, we draw near to God there in verse 19. Verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 20. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So God promised that the Melchizedekian priesthood would be eternal. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 
Why is it a better covenant? Because the old covenant, it couldn't fix the problem. All it could do is show you the problem. It's going to say in just a couple, in a couple chapters here, year after year, it's just a reminder of sin. That's what the sacrifices are. All the feasts and the festivals, it's just a reminder. Man, we need a Savior to come and fulfill this. Well, God had made a promise that there was going to be a greater priesthood. The order of Melchizedek. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And here's your application. Why is that so important? What does that mean? Verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost or completely or at all times those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. What we need is a priest who never sleeps or slumbers. What we need is a priest who never dies. What we need is a priest who will for eternity stand between us and the Father and intercede on our behalf so that we might enjoy the Father and have access to Him. We need that kind of priest. He says, don't go back to the Levitical priesthood. You've got a bunch of priests that just keep dying because that was just a tutor to prepare you for a greater priesthood that God promised would come. And Jesus is the one who fulfills that. Well, how is he qualified? Because he's the only one who has an indestructible life. He is the only one who will forever live to make intercession for you. He is the only one who will never die. Because he's died once and now rose, rose and death no longer has mastery over him. Jesus is the Melchizedekian priest who intercedes forever for you if you are in Christ. Now, one of the other reasons that's really important to know this is not just because of the great comfort that comes from knowing that we have a priest who never dies, but because Satan is crafty. Do you know who else talks about the Melchizedekian priesthood pretty often? The Church of Latter-day Saints. So the Mormons will come to your door and they will rap, tap, tap. And they'll say, can we, can we tell you about Jesus Christ? And about the Church of Latter-day Saints. And they'll come in and they'll say, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but um, Joseph Smith is of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And you'd be like, Melchizedek who? And then they'll be like, are you not familiar with the Melchizedekian priesthood? Well, let me show you. And they'll flip over to this chapter that nobody ever reads. And it's like, Melchizedek what? And you just kind of pass. And they will take a text that people will not press into very often. And they'll do this kind of like hocus pocus thing. And then what they're going to say is that Joseph Smith is the fulfillment of this. He's the Melchizedekian priesthood of which we too are priests. So we encourage you to listen because he has given us the gospel and we will forever be able to intercede for you. They pull that stuff. Like that's a common thing that they do. And you know who they prey upon? Evangelicals who don't read their Bible. And they know that. That's why they go to hard, mysterious, odd texts and pull them out of context. So so remember this about false teachers. False teachers always use the Bible to tell you lies. Just like Satan did. Remember he... Satan used the Bible to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. So just remember that. This is why it's important for us to be able to practice discernment so that we're not deceived easily. Okay? 
The good news, though, is that Jesus forever lives to intercede for his people and to help them. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has made made perfect forever. The priests are mere servants. Jesus is the son. Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood because of the Melchizedekian priesthood, and he forever lives to intercede for us. So Jesus is fully like other priests in all the ways we need him to be. That he was human, that he was tempted, that he sympathized. But he is fully unlike other priests in all the ways we need him to be. He was holy, innocent, and unstained. Jesus is a better priest. And he serves a better priesthood. And he offers a better sacrifice himself to appease the Father. Now, one other thing. um, Well, no. There's lots of things we could get into. I'll just pause there. So I know, th- I know that's deep, okay? Um, but it's, it's, it's good and rich stuff. So what I want to do is I want to go ahead and take a few questions on this, anything from six, anything from seven, just to make sure you're understanding the flow of the book. Again, the point of this seminar, one of the points, is to help you to understand how the book flows. So the main thing, if you didn't understand anything I just said, is that Jesus is of the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's an eternal priest who ever lives to make intercession for you. That's better than the Levitical priesthood, so don't go back to it, okay? Then we'll go into chapter 8. That's what chapter 7 is about, basically, okay? Anybody have any questions or anything that was unclear that you need, need a little more clarification on? I've got a question here. Uh, remember your, your name and what church you're from and then your question as abbreviated as possible. My name is Vincent. I'm from Redeemer Church of Dubai. And uh, my question is that you touched upon the uh, eternity, eternality of Christ yes. being the high priest. Uh, can you touch upon the perfect, perfection of Jesus Christ because uh, chapters of Hebrews 2 and uh, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 9 and chapter seven twenty-eight speaks about the perfection, how Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who offered a perfect sacrifice Good. Which, which was not there in the Levitical system. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, just on the perfection of Christ. Yeah, because Jesus is God, He has no sin. Um, and in order to, for us to know that that's true, He has to be tempted and tested and suffer. So through His tempting and testing and suffering... Jesus proves that he is indeed perfect. He's always been perfect. He will always be perfect. That is proved. Though, so when he becomes a man, does that mean that he's become a sinner too? The answer is no. How do we know? Well, because he lives his righteous life in front of everybody. So as, the, as a high priest would receive a lamb and inspect it and make sure that there's no blemish, Basically, Jesus' life on earth was one big inspection of him, showing that he was indeed righteous, there's no blemish in him, so that he could be the offering that is acceptable before the Father. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, that's my best guess on that. Yep. Into the mic. Uh, Cameron from UCCD. 
Uh, in verse 28, it talks about the word of the oath, which came later than the law. And in the flow of the argument, he's been talking about Melchizedek. Can you clarify what the author means when he says that uh, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Sure. What's that word of the oath? And, yeah. And when was it made? Back up in verse 21 where he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn. That swearing is his oath. The Lord swore and will not change his mind. You, the Lord says to my Lord, the Father says to the Son, you, the Son, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Father gave a promise. Remember back in chapter uh, 6 at the end, he made a promise and then he gave an oath to it. Well, the reason that's important is because he made another oath that we need to know about, and that's the oath about the Melchizedekian priesthood. So where it says the Lord swore, that's his oath that he's referring back to there. So is he making that oath through David in Psalm 110? Through David or for David? Oh, through David. Yeah, yeah. When, when was that oath? Yeah, yeah. so, so he's, he's, there is going to be a descendant who's going to sit on David's throne. So he's, he may be speaking to David, but David, David's not going to be it because David's going to die. But there's going to be one from David's line who's going to come who will be a king and who will never die again. And that's Jesus. So speaking to Jesus through David, as it were. Yeah. In Psalm 110. Because in he's, Psalm 110, yeah. yep. So he talks about Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Yep. And then the oath is made in, in Psalm 110. Yep. Is that what he's trying that's to right. say? That's right, yeah. So we yep. see a picture of Melchizedek way before the law. And then we get a promise about Melchizedek after the law. Yeah. Thanks. Good. Good questions. We've got time for one more question over here. Name, where you're from, please. My name is Ethan Merck. Um, I go to Redeemer and uh, from the U.S. Um, in chapter 7, verse 26, what does it mean that it was fitting for us to have such a high priest? Um, does that mean that we deserved such a high priest? I mean, that's the way it hits me when I first read it. Yeah. Uh, it, it means that we need a high priest who's like us. Uh, that, that's what it means. It, it, it's fitting in the sense of the way that God's plan. So God knows in eternity past the best way to magnify himself in history. So what happens in time in history is part of the, the plan that he ordains from eternity past, the best way to show who he is in time in history. The way to do that in his perfect wisdom is to have um, his son come and be like humans in everything except sin, to represent them fully. So the, the, the thing with the high priest in the, on the Levitical priesthood is you have somebody who's just one of us who goes and stands before God and intercedes. I'm, I'm one of us. Well, Jesus becomes one of us, and he represents us. That's why the blood of bulls and goats, don't, they can't fix the problem. It's because it's not an equal payment. We need human blood. So Jesus becomes human, flesh and blood, so that he can offer his body as an offering. So he is both the high priest and the offering. That's why it's fitting in that sense. And there needs to be, there's been a crime, there needs to be an equal payment. Also, we just need somebody who's, who's of us, as it were. It's a good question. Any other just burning question? Last one. Name, where you're from, please. Fountain from Redeemer. 
Um, so there is uh, in in the description of the high priest and the Levitical high priest, there is a description that the high priest kind of has like a stone with the names of the twelve tribes, and he steps in and representing the people of Israel in some of his. So how how does Christ fit into that? Or how, how do we see Christ reflect that as well? Yeah, good, good question. Kind of another sermon for another day. So how does Jesus fulfill like the, the breastplate and all the, the tribes on him and all that kind of stuff? The very short answer is that when Jesus dies, so the high priest has the weight of the nation and all of the tribes close to his heart, just like they are to God. Jesus, when he comes, he dies for all of the people who will ever trust in him. They are upon his heart and he has, the, he has their weight upon his shoulders. Their sin, he takes it and he purchases his people with his blood on the cross. So in that sense, it's, it's the same. It, he fulfills that picture that the priest walked around with the people who were close to God's heart and the nation rested upon him. Well, Christ does that for the sheep. He purchased them with his blood. So that's the short answer. So good. Chapter 8, here we go. All right, so if Jesus is a greater priest, or a greater, yeah, it's a greater priest of a greater priesthood, well, if, he, if we did away with the law in the sense that it's fulfilled, Jesus said, uh, Matthew 5, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So he fulfills the law, then, then what about that old covenant? What, what about the Mosaic covenant? Well, Jesus is going to bring a new covenant. That's right, Rob. Let's get rid of it. We're going to fulfill it. All done. Okay? So he's going to fulfill the old covenant, and he's going to usher in and now mediate a new, better covenant. Chapter 8. Now, the point in what we were saying is this. Thank you. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That's heaven. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Verse 4. Now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Meaning, in one sense, Jesus could not have just been an earthly priest. Because he doesn't offer gifts according to the law. Bull, lamb, pigeons. Why? Well, verse 5, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So Jesus couldn't have come as a Levitical priest just offering up bulls and goats and, and pigeons and whatnot. Because they're shadows. Jesus comes to deal with substance of, the, of which those things are looking forward to. So they serve as a copy of the heavenly things. For, this is, this is cool, when Moses was about to, to uh, set up the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Meaning while, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai, apparently what God did was when he's giving the instructions about the tabernacle, he says, Moses, something like this, Moses. Watch this. And he pulls back that veil between time and space and shows into heaven. And he says, you see the true tabernacle? You're about to build a little tent. I want it to look like that. And then go build you one. And he gives him all the specs. 
which is supposed to be a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. So you remember in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah gets the vision of God in a throne room, holy, holy, holy. Well, God is there in a throne room. Well, the tabernacle is a picture of that. It's, it's a picture where God the king is going to set and he is going to rule there over his people in that place. It's, it's merely a shadow though. It's not the real thing. It's a shadow of, 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 the, of the true thing, as it were. Verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Really? There's better promises? Yes, there are. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. There was a problem with the first covenant. So they needed a new covenant. Well, what was wrong with the first covenant? Verse 8. Tell me what what was the problem with the first covenant? Somebody just look there at verse 8. That first little line there. He finds fault with them. There was actually nothing wrong with the first covenant. The problem was the people. God's word's always true. It's always right. The covenant was fine. The problem was the people. The people wouldn't keep it, didn't keep it. He finds fault with, with them. He finds fault with them. So the fault with the first covenant was with the people of God who he brought out of Egypt. They disobeyed God's law. What did they do? Well, they did not continue. They started well, but they turned to idols. So what's God going to do? Well, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The problem with the old covenant wasn't the covenant, or the covenant giver. But it was in the, the problem was with the people who were covenant breakers. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And what he's going to do here in verse 10, he's quoting from the, from the prophet Jeremiah. And he is going to show here a greater covenant, a better covenant. God has a promises for his chosen people. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one uh, his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God says, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring a new covenant And I'm going to give it to the people and it's going to be better than the old covenant. And it's going to be so much better that I am going to remember their sins no more. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far I'm going to to remember their transgressions. It's going to be gone forever. He's got a better covenant. God will now relate to his people in a more intimate way. Mind, heart, spirit, going to dwell there. There's an internal change that's happening. God will relate to his people in a more permanent way. He's going to give them a new heart, 
I will be their God. They will be my people. And God will fully and finally give His people a pardon for sins. I will be merciful and remember their sins no more. Brothers and sisters, that is the promise that Jesus purchased with His own blood. His blood was shed to wash away all of the transgressions that you and I have committed against God. So I don't know where you've been or what you've done. I don't know what you're hiding. I don't know what you did today or yesterday or in weeks or years ago that haunt you. I don't know what all of your transgressions are. The Lord, the Lord certainly knows all. But in Christ, there's forgiveness. To be forgiven means the debt that stood against you is canceled. Why? Because it's been paid in full. The blood of Christ purchased this promise for any who will repent of their sins and believe in Him. They are brought under a new covenant. We are there and not reminded year after year of their old sins, but rather they are reminded of the grace that God gives undeserving rebels who are now made His children. It's the mercy of God that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Now the... And, and, and this is where we see that, that Jesus himself is he's, 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 he's better. He is, he's not an old, wrinkled, withering, sinful priest, but he is a glorious, victorious, eternal priest who ever lives to intercede for his people according to this covenant that he now rules his people by. And there's a sense in which we already experience all of this, and there's another sense in which we do not yet experience all of this. So believers are caught in this already not yet tension that we live in. So as we read through this, there's, there's very much, this is true of God's people. But in another sense, one day it will be fully experienced. We partially experience this now. We will one day fully experience it. Where we will see God face to face. So now we see Him by faith through Christ. Well, one day we'll see him by sight because of Christ. We'll behold the face of the Father. Every tear will be wiped away. Sin will be no more. Can you imagine a day where you won't even be tempted to sin? Can you imagine that day where you'll no longer struggle? You'll no longer be weary of fighting. Where you'll no longer have to worry about another funeral of another friend. We will never have to hear about people who are who are wandering from their homes looking somewhere to lay their head because there will be a home that will be theirs forevermore that nobody can ever take away. Those gates are guarded by the glory of God and His promises to His people. I will be their God forevermore. That's what's laid before God's people, a sweet promise of forgiveness and embrace in Christ that the Old Covenant doesn't give you that. The Old Covenant, it, it served its purpose, which was to point to Jesus who was to come. Just one, one thing just to help explain just a little bit about your Christian experience. Do you notice there in verse 10? I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Under the Old Covenant, the law was given out here on tablets of stone for us to see the Holy Spirit who gave that law now lives within us. 
It's what regeneration is. The Holy Spirit comes in, takes out old stony heart, gives you a new heart, a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36 says, that beats after the living God. And now the law of God is written on your heart. That's why if you're a Christian, when you sin, it bothers you. Because the the law that we broke, it offends God, and God who gave it is now in us, and it grieves Him. That's why we feel it when we sin. It's, it's because the lawgiver is within us by his spirit. So the incarnation's amazing, that God would become a man. That's amazing. I think equally amazing is that God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside believers. Like, would you want to live in you? Like, I don't want to live in me. You know what I mean? But God would take up residence within his people and dwell there by his spirit. So that's what's happening. So when you sin and you feel conviction, it's not, it's again, it's not just that you're breaking a rule, but it's an offense against the God who's written his law on your heart. That's why it bothers Christians. That's why if you can just sin and it doesn't bother you, that's a terrifying prospect. If, if sin just doesn't bother you, it's either A, because you are a Christian but you have grieved and quenched the Spirit so much that you've just hardened your heart in a way that I pray this warning and these books will awaken in you and that you will confess of your sin and repent and ask for God to give you a sensitive heart. Or it's because you've never been born again and you're just going through religious motions and you've had spiritual experiences like the people here in the book of Hebrews, some of them who went out from them. What this book is intended to do under the the power of the Holy Spirit is to awaken in you an awareness of of where you are. Okay? So that's chapter 8. That Jesus mediates a greater covenant. He's He's a greater priest in a greater priesthood who ever lives to make intercession for his people. God has sworn that he will make this priest an eternal one. And because of that, we have great confidence to draw near in faith. And we know that this Jesus is mediating a greater covenant, the new covenant, a promise that God will relate to his people now in a very intimate way, even more than he did under the old covenant. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to get into chapter 9 a little bit here. And... um, so 9 and 10 kind of go together, um, or, and, but we're going to take a break around 8.30, so we'll just get to going, see where we are, take a few questions, and then we'll jump back in after, after the break here. So Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus offers a greater sacrifice himself in a greater tabernacle, heaven. So 9.1 all the way through 10.18. Now, the way that this starts here in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, he is going to kind of give you an outline to help you understand how the old... It's basically going to sum up Leviticus for you. And he's going to tell you that there was a place where worship happened, verses 1 through 5, and there was a practice of how worship happened, verses 6 through 10. All right, There was a place where worship happened, verses 1 through 5, and there was a practice of how worship happened, verses 6 through 10. All this is under the old covenant. All right, so let's, let's look through this here. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, ooh, hold on. I missed verse 13. Back up to 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete 
and growing old is ready to vanish away. So don't go back. It's vanishing away. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. Okay? You don't go back. That's why you don't hold on to the old covenant. Because Jesus is now operating under a new covenant. New wineskins. 9-1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship. Verses 6-10. through 10, And an earthly place of holiness. Verses 1-5. through 5. So now he's going to talk here about where worship happened. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which... Uh, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. So you had this lampstand that was in there. It was a reminder of God's um, presence was always burning there with his people. The bread of presence, he was always their provision. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, also known as the holy of holies. Okay, Same place. Verse 4. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Basically, he just sums up a whole bunch of Leviticus for you and tells you how how it's set up. Okay, So there's your cliff notes on Leviticus. Really interesting thing to note here. So you've got this Holy of Holies where you have the Ark. The Ark was a symbol of God's presence. Within the Ark, you have the law of God. On top, you have the mercy seat. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would come in once a year. He would come in and he would sprinkle blood of an innocent animal on where? Anybody know? On the mercy seat. God was said to have dwell on top of the cherubim looking down. Okay, he's, he's reigns here. So basically the picture is this, that God sitting here on the mercy seat looks down before the priest comes in and he sees his law, but he sees that his law is broken. It's broken by the people because of their sins. And God is angry. Because God is good, he is going to judge sin. But because he's also merciful, he's provided a sacrifice. So an innocent one's blood is shed and it is brought in and blood is placed on the mercy seat. So now a holy God looks down and rather than seeing the broken law, he sees what? Blood. Paid. He's no longer angry. It's been propitiated and the wrath has been appeased until the next year. Until the next year. Until the next year until the next year. And basically what you have is you have this tidal wave of wrath that God is restraining for all of history until the Lamb of God, Jesus, comes and dies on the cross and that tidal wave of wrath falls upon Him. And He gets what all of the sinners from before and all of the sinners afterwards deserve. The wrath of God for those who have broken His law, which is all people, falls upon Him. Jesus is the provision for God's people of all time. So if you've ever wondered how Old Testament saints get saved, the same way New Testament saints get saved. Old Testament, by grace, through faith in the one who would come. By grace, through faith in the one who did come. It's always Jesus. People are always saved the same way. Some people think that people under the Old Covenant were saved by keeping the law. That's just not what the Bible teaches. That's not true. 
the law was to teach them that they needed a savior, always saved by grace through faith in the one who would come. Jesus paid it all for all of God's people for all time. And then he rose from the dead to now be their intercessor forevermore. So it was a good place to kind of put that in to help you grasp how all of this fits together. So he's the hope of all those who came before, we'll see in chapter 11, and all those who come after, including us. Now, verse 6, he's going to talk here about the practice of worship. So that was the place of worship. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties, oil, bread, two lambs a day. Uh, in the morning, in the evening, and then all of the other sacrifices. So that was your daily worship is happening there. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. This is the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Meaning people can't approach God as long as this, this, this um, first covenant and first way of approaching Him is still intact. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The old covenant was not intended to be eternal. It was set up for a time until one would come and would fulfill it, who would reform it, as it were, and bring about what the anticipation was. Notice there also what the the sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It can't fix it. It doesn't fix the problem. It just pricks the conscience again and again and again. But Jesus, he comes, and when he, when he sheds his blood, you know what our conscience now remembers? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, it's paid, it's done. It does perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, I think this is a good place to pause, because if I just, we need to do, I think, 11 through 10.18 all together. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll pause here for a moment and see if anybody has any questions uh, about anything that we've covered right here, and then we'll take, we'll take a, about a 10-minute break and then come back and just keep on trucking through, okay? So who has any questions about any of that in chapter 8 um, or that first part of chapter 9? Uh, wait, wait for the mic, and if you could tell us your name... Uh, social security number, bank account, routing number, all those things, that'd be helpful. Philip uh, Van Steenberg from Redeemer. Uh, in chapter 8, verse 13, he seems to say that the first covenant is not quite gone yet. It's becoming obsolete, but I'm reading that to mean it's not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. Is he telling us that there's still, is it implied there that there's still use for us in the first covenant? Or is that not really his point there? He's dealing with something else. I'm unsure if that's his point. I think it's true the first covenant still has use for us. So there's still use to the law, right? So the law serves, serves us well. It instructs us about God's character. It instructs us about his will. It helps us to show our sin. Um, 
so that we're constantly reminded of the fact that we, that we need a Savior. There's, there's lots of, of good uses of the law. I'm not sure that's his intent here. Um, I, I, think he's, I think he's making the point that God is ushering in a new way and he's ushered out the old way. So he, he probably, it, it would also be true if he'd say, that one is obsolete. I think it's, it's the same thing. This one's fading away. And this new one is coming. It's just, it's kind of the picture of, of the, the sun setting on an, on an old day and a sun rising on a new day. That there's, God is ushering in this new covenant and where he is finalizing these last days of his, his promise. I think that's kind of the idea. It's good. Um, Ethan Merck, Redeemer. Um, a kind of a following question then to Phillips. Um, in 7.12, it says that when there's a new priesthood, there's a change of law. So you mentioned that the law is still a value to us in the Old Testament. What is that change of law? Yeah, the, the way that God commands people to approach him is different now. The, the way that God commands people to approach him is no longer through the shadow, but through the substance. Who is Christ? That's why the whole, the whole book is about don't go back to the old way. The, the, the new way is Christ. So all people everywhere are commanded to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ. And, and I think that's the idea here. So um, so law is, is fulfilled in Christ, and he now reigns and rules as our Lord. And I, I think that's what he means there. So it's a good question. We've got time for one more question, and then you get your break. Karen Race, what's your question? All right. Oh, it is. You should get married. I did. Listen, brother. Rob McCutcheon. Brother, I can't tell you how many sisters I've done that to in our congregation. Because there's all these sisters I've been praying for for a long time to get husbands. And uh, praise God, he's provided. So, celebration. There we go. Thank you, Karen McCutcheon. God bless you guys. You get 10-minute break. Okay.